If you've ever been to the county of Kerry, in the very southwest of Ireland, you'll probably understand why it's earned the nickname the Kingdom. The countryside around here is, in a word, majestic, and it's been one of Ireland's biggest tourism destinations for as long as anyone can remember. But tucked away in one of the most beautiful corners of this county, on the famous Ring of Kerry, is a very special place, a centuries-old woolen mill that has been marrying tradition with contemporary styling for generations. My name is Andrew Eady. I'm the managing director of Kerry Woolen Mills. I'm a Kerryman through and through, and we're working from the same site at 300 years, but we'd like to think our business, though old and traditional, is adapted to modern usage. Andrew has grown up around the woolen business. His great-grandfather bought this place back in 1904, and by then there had already been a woolen mill here for over 200 years. He learned all he needed to know from his father, and then worked hard on further refining his craft by incorporating the wisdom of fellow weavers. Yeah, so I suppose I was hanging around this place since I was eight or nine, really, and my father passed on all his knowledge to me. For centuries, these woolen mills have drawn their power from the nearby river Guiston, which drives its wooden water turbines. Today, that river still provides a natural, traditional and renewable source of energy for the mills. I suppose there's a drive, everybody has a drive to make themselves more green and our project is to make ourselves self-sufficient in energy in the next uh, 10 years. And in a way, I suppose that's going back to the roots, I'd, I'd imagine. Absolutely, it's going back to where we started really, isn't it? The woolen mills produce a range of products, from the traditional Aran-style sweaters to stoles, scarves and woven blankets made from some of the softest wool in Ireland, all manufactured using age-old craftsmanship. Meanwhile, in-house production means that Kerry Woolen Mills can create its own unique and innovative products, incorporating an ancient skill set with modern design. We're taking the wool in here from the sheep. So then we tease it, blend it, dye it, card it, spin it. We also have weaving, obviously, on the premises. And then we make up clothing products out of the woven fabric. So we have a wide range of um, skills and um, techniques on site, really, and crafts. So in the last year, for example, we are doing... Um, Re- historical reenactment fabrics because we would have the skill set to do that from having done in my earlier life a lot of traditional woolen fabrics, uh, heavily milled, and there's a shortage of mills that can do that nowadays. So That's really interesting because that's something I've come across a little bit. People like to dress up in historically accurate yeah. clothing, including like the old materials that people would have been wearing, like the leather and things like that. And I suppose if they're coming to you, they're actually getting the real deal because you still have that tradition. Well, that is it. And so many people are buying their raw materials, their yarns off a colour palette that comes from a yarn supplier. And so if you want to step out of the norm a little bit, the fact that you can over-dye or innovate or dye your own. To be different from the sort of off-the-rack colours. Totally, that's the whole thing, yeah. You can just mark out your range a bit by having your own little offbeat colours. For centuries, weaving like this used to be an essential industry in Ireland. But the rise of mass-produced fast fashion means that Kerry Woolen Mills is one of the few traditional craft makers still to survive today. They've done this, Andrew explained, by striving to maintain the very highest standards of quality, as well as adapting their products for more contemporary tastes. That's the challenge now, is trying to train my son, because or get my son training, because now there's no colleges left training people in production, because there's so no woolen industry left, really, in the Western world, really. I think those that have survived and are here now know that their product, it's only going to sell if it also has 
a ring of quality about it, an authenticity and a combination of the best of the traditions and classics, but also adapted to 21st century usage. Biddy Murphy have given Andrew and others like him the scope to do just that, by showcasing this precious craft to an international audience on their website, biddymurphy.com. We found them very honourable. They're willing to take a chance on some products we make. I suppose I trust in us that the products we recommended would work. I think it has had uh, quite an impact because it's found customers for our products that we hadn't found, which is a huge thing. Their reach to their customers has been very impressive. If you want to check out some of Andrew's work, do head over to www.biddymurphy.com, season three sponsors of the Irish Passport podcast. Biddy Murphy, sharing the joy of Ireland. Now, onto the episode. Hello and welcome everyone to the season three finale of the Irish Passport podcast. We've had such an amazing year making this season and we've got some really exciting episodes already in the making for season four. So a huge thanks to everyone who has joined us along the way so far, to our season three sponsors, Biddy Murphy, and especially to our Patreon supporters who have made it possible for the podcast to get to season four. Yes, and for this final episode, we are looking at one of Ireland's most controversial topics, direct provision, Ireland's unique and highly criticised system of accommodation for asylum seekers. We'll be speaking to Bulalani Mafako, a resident at the Nakalishin Direct Provision Centre, which is situated on the border between County Clare and County Limerick. He'll be telling us what it's actually like to live in these centres, where people are housed often for months or for years at a time. You wake up every single day, it's like a prisoner's routine. You wake up, eat, shower and sleep. The guy who was staying in the room that I'm in spent 10 years there and I just couldn't imagine my life. 10 for years? 10 years in, yeah. So imagine spending a decade, you don't get that life back. We'll also hear from Irish Times journalist Sorka Pollock on how the issue of housing asylum seekers in Ireland has recently begun to be exploited by the international far right, who are seeking to stoke up anti-immigrant sentiment in the country. This Facebook group and many other Facebook groups and Facebook events that have appeared over the last few months seem to all be tied back to a small group of people and a small network that is running around the country that we realised over time they were all interconnected. And later on we'll hear from the Rosangano family, an Irish hip-hop group who have touched on the topic of direct provision and immigration in their award-winning music. Go back where you came from. I don't want any of your kind here anymore. Transition plane from Turkey, but you gotta be go Turkey. No syrup, no clue, no English, no clue. Just dry skin on the aircraft. Now, Naomi, the issue of direct provision has been a big one in Irish politics for ages. But right now, it could come to the forefront more than ever with the long-awaited general election in the mix. Yep, Ireland goes to the polls on February 8th. And direct provision and the related issues around it could prove a potent political issue, both for those who want the system abolished and those who seek to exploit it as a wedge issue to inflame anti-immigrant sentiment. By the way, we'll be laying out the players, the stakes and the far right's playbook to hack the Irish elections in a coming half pint over on our Patreon page. Uh, So don't forget to keep an eye on our extra content by heading over now to www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. But anyway, before we go any further, we should begin by explaining what exactly we're talking about when we say direct provision. 
Here's Sorka Pollock, a journalist with the Irish Times who reports on the controversial system. So direct provision is a system that exists here in Ireland of accommodation and housing for asylum seekers. It's about to reach now its 20th anniversary in March of 2020. It'll be 20 years since Ireland introduced this system. The conversation about direct provision started back in 1999 when the numbers of asylum seekers arriving in Ireland suddenly started to go up. Before that, Quite understandably, people weren't so interested in coming to Ireland. For obvious reasons, the 80s, there were, there were not many opportunities here and it was not viewed as a country of opportunities generally. Then in the mid-90s, the numbers started to slowly rise. And then in 1999, the numbers increased by nearly 70%. And the government suddenly said, we need to respond to this in some way. The new system involved a network of accommodation centres where people seeking asylum are housed while their applications are being processed. This is something that often takes months and several years in some cases. So 1999, the conversation began in government about where people seeking asylum would be housed. Before that, they were basically treated the way someone in Ireland would be treated if they were homeless. So they'd be on social welfare and they'd be supported in that manner. And the then Minister for Justice, John O'Donoghue, in November of 99, in a conversation with government officials, first brought up the idea of this system that would involve accommodation centres around the country where people would stay while they waited for an answer on their application. And then in March of 2000, it was formally announced and shortly thereafter, people started to be placed in these centres. So what is the status of people who might be housed in direct provision? Uh, Basically, status can be boiled down to three basic categories. Firstly, the UN definition of a refugee is someone who has been forced to flee their country because of persecution, war or violence. Uh, It's an amazing fact, actually, that two-thirds of all refugees worldwide come from just five countries. Those are Syria, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Myanmar and Somalia. However, the majority of people who come to Ireland seeking asylum are refused on the first instance. And then they're usually considered for the next category, subsidiary protection. That means that people can prove that these people would be at risk of serious harm if they were sent back to their country of origin. Thirdly, there are those who have not been granted either of these statuses and who are in Ireland under so-called leave-to-remain status. Uh, These are people who have usually spent the longest in the system because their cases have been put on the back burner to some extent. Uh, Their futures depend on ministerial discretion, so i.e. whether they can still show that their lives are in danger. If applicants don't fall into any of the above categories, they can be deported. Ireland so far has been quite unusual in that immigration has been less of a prominent political issue than in many other countries. Even though there's been an international trend of nativist politics on the rise from India to the US, Ireland has largely been an exception. No Irish party campaigning on an anti-immigrant platform has yet succeeded in carving out a significant space in Irish politics. In contrast to many countries, there are no group of anti-immigration firebrands in the Irish Parliament. Now, as Sorka Pollock mentioned earlier, uh, in Ireland, immigration is still quite a new and relatively small-scale phenomenon. Uh, Right up until the economic boom of the late 90s, uh, the prevailing trend in Ireland has been emigration. And of course, famously, Ireland has a massive diaspora all around the world. Uh, Even though immigration figures have risen in recent decades, the numbers are still remarkably low when compared with most European countries. When it comes to refugees, we're only talking about a few thousand people. But even so, the system in place to accommodate them is beset with structural problems. Let's hear from Sorka again. At the moment, there are around 6,000 people in direct provision in Ireland, including 1,672 children and an additional 1,500 people who are staying in 
emergency accommodation. And I really should mention emergency accommodation because it was introduced in September of 2018 because the government had run out of spaces in regular direct provision centres. And emergency accommodation are hotels and B&Bs who temporarily house asylum seekers when they first arrive. And quite simply, they're not fit for purpose. For all direct provision has been criticised over the years. They do undergo inspections. They have certain standards in place that they must meet, particularly in the last few years. Emergency accommodation doesn't have to meet those standards because it's seen as temporary. So you have a situation where, for instance, in Limerick, I was speaking to a charity down there and they were having to collect the laundry of people staying in a hotel because the hotel refused to do the laundry of the asylum seekers because it was not included in the contract that they had signed and people were left with dirty laundry. So volunteers were coming in and getting their laundry. Also reports of babies without enough milk, not enough nappies, and also issues around asylum seekers when they arrived literally being brought straight to these places in the middle of the countryside and dropped off without much of an explanation as to what was going to happen next. That prevailing sense of uncertainty is one of the most notable elements of the direct provision system, and it's not confined only to emergency accommodation. Uh, In the main direct provision centres too, residents often have no idea how long they're going to stay there, if they're going to be moved to another centre, or even whom they'll be sharing their bedroom with. I visited one of the centres last year to speak to Bulalani Mafako originally from South Africa, who's a resident at Nakalishin Direct Provision Centre. Nakalishin is on a narrow road that leads out of Limerick City into the countryside. It's surrounded by fields, and on the day I visited, the rain was lashing down without mercy, the sky was grey, and the flat institutional architecture of the centre brought me back to the depressing atmosphere of school days that seemed to stretch on forever. Bulalani met me at the entrance and I signed in as a visitor. Just to note, since we recorded the interview, some of the figures that Bulalani mentions have changed, but not by much. You wake up every single day, it's like a prisoner's routine. You wake up, eat, shower and sleep. You may play football if it's a sunny day, but it's, you're not going to be playing football in the rain. But there's a common room in the centre. You can play pool, but you can only play pool so many times, Like especially if you're here for years. Um, when I moved in here in my room, there was a guy who was fixing the television in the room and I asked him, um, how long do people normally stay here? And he said the guy who was staying in the room that I'm in spent 10 years there and I just couldn't imagine my life. 10 for years. 10 years in, yeah. So imagine spending a decade, you don't get that life back once you've lost because you're not allowed to work for status when you uh, immediately apply for asylum. So life changes. Um, I used to work, I used to study and I worked and studied at the same time. So I was doing a PhD and I was uh, working uh, for Abtrani, the teaching council. Every single day, life had a meaning. It had purpose. I woke up every single day. I was looking forward to work. I knew what tasks I would do when I would get to work. And I knew what academic text I would be reading for my thesis. But now the only thing I wake up and look forward for is just to worry about not missing breakfast. Because if I miss breakfast, I'm going to starve until lunchtime. If you miss your meal time, you might well starve because you only get 21.60 per week. And there aren't that many shops around here. So the bus that takes us into the city centre goes three times a day. It only stays in the city centre for 15 minutes. So um, you have to get whatever it is you need to get in the city centre in that 15 minutes or else you'll wait hours and hours for the next bus. Back home, Bulanani was a PhD student. But a succession of violent attacks on the LGBT plus community led him to flee South Africa in fear of his life. I was born in the Eastern Cape in South Africa. And when I lived there, 
um, there was a study recently that said um, it's one of the most homophobic places in South Africa. It's where you're most likely to be bitten, kicked, or, or killed if you are a gay person, an openly gay person, or you're suspected of being gay or trans or anything like that in the LGBT plus community. I left the village in 2001 and I moved to Cape Town. Cape Town is perceived to be South Africa's gay capital. I thought it would be nice and friendly, so I moved to Cape Town and my, I had family there. But over time, uh, we started noticing an increase in violence against LGBT plus people. So lesbians would have been raped. It's, they call it corrective rape. So men target lesbians and rape them to show them what they are missing. And then we started seeing a lot of murders as well of LGBT plus people. And if, about five or six years ago, we had a gang that existed for the sole purpose of hunting and killing gay men. Through all those experiences, you start to wonder if you're going to be the next one on the list. I had stones thrown at me once. I was walking with my boyfriend from the movies. We were walking home after watching a movie and we had stones thrown at us. And that made it even more real because I've, I would have read about people being stoned to death uh, because of their sexual orientation in Cape Town. Second year in university, a transgender student was bitten to a pulp in the, in the university by other students. The security guard on campus watched. They did absolutely nothing. So when you walk on into the campus, you worry about the next pe the person next to you. Were they part of the group that was watching and laughing when somebody else was being bitten, or maybe they were doing the beating themselves? I, I increasingly became desperate to leave the place. I didn't want to be there. Like I, I, I never wanted to have that worry that I might be killed because of my sexual orientation, because well, we have courts, we have police, but that's nice. They're not going to bring me back if I'm dead. I wanted to get out of there, so I increasingly got desperate. And the first thing I thought of, well, one, I'm too poor to afford a plane ticket. How am I going to get out of this place? And if I do get out, where do I go? And so I first thought, well, I'm studying. If I do well on my studies, I could apply for study abroad. I started sending out applications. I got offers from all of them, but the only one that came with uh, full course funding was one for Ireland. I studied and finished studying. I didn't want to uh, apply for asylum because I had read a lot about direct provision system. Uh, one of the things that scared me even more was that a lesbian who lived down the road from where I lived was murdered. And shortly after, a lesbian couple who had been married for three years was uh, murdered. They were raped, they were murdered, and they were bent in their car. The situation became even more urgent to actually need apply for international protection. The minister has discretionary power to grant permission to remain to any uh, non-EU citizen of good character or on the grounds of humanitarian, as they call Humanitarian it. reasons? Yes, something like that, yes. I applied for that on, on the, using the same reasons that I would have used to apply for asylum. But I never got a response except to say that we acknowledge receipt of your application. So we have three levels of protection. So you can either get UN Convention refugee status or subsidiary protection, or you can get permission to remain from the International Protection Office as well. So I approached them and asked them if they would process the application for permission to remain without uh, going through the asylum process because I didn't want to end up in a direct provision system. Uh, they said no. So I then was left with no other alternative except to apply for protection. Since I applied for protection, I've been uh, waiting for an interview. My interview is scheduled for March. I have no idea what the decision will be after the interview, but having to live in a place like this is quite awful because when I first moved in here, my first roommate was quite homophobic. Uh, when he learned that I'm gay, he told me straight up he doesn't like that shit. You don't have much of a privacy when you live in this place and you don't have much personal autonomy. Well, they say you're free to walk, but 
are you going to, he's refused to leave, but where, what are you going to do if you're not allowed to work? One of the most important things to take into account when trying to understand the direct provision system is that it's actually designed to be unappealing. In fact, as Sorka explains, this was an underlying factor of the system from its very inception. There was a constant fear of the so-called pull factor, that people would be more inclined to come to Ireland if there were quite simply better conditions for them here. There's a lot of documentation that I've seen over the years through FOIs that shows that politicians were discussing this pull factor quite regularly, that they, they feared that Ireland would suddenly jump the list and be up there with Germany and UK. So this was a system that was deliberately designed not to be too pleasant for people because there was a belief that this would incentivize people to come to Ireland and that was viewed as being a negative thing. Exactly. And you'd never, and a government official would never say that to you. They'd never openly admit that. The only times I've had people admit that to me has been off record. But there was there was a conscious effort within the Oireachtas to make this as unappealing as possible so that only those who absolutely needed to come here would come here. When the Republic of Ireland established the system of direct provision, uh, I think about 18 years ago, one of the, the reasons why they established it was to curb widespread, uh, and I put it in inverted commas, uh, widespread welfare fraud, because they said a lot of people were coming to seek asylum in Ireland because they wanted to have access to Irish welfare. And they wanted an asylum system that greatly resembles whatever it is in, uh, in the UK. In the same in the UK, they are not allowed to work. I think now they would only be allowed to work after 12 months, whereas here they introduced a new scheme that would allow people to work after... Um, nine months if you haven't had a first census decision. But even that is still restrictive because I'm a trained bureaucrat. I can't work in the public service, but I'm trained to work in the public service. And the interview process goes well until you get to the immigration part. Well, do you have a permission to work here? And what stamp is it? No, it's not a stamp. What do you mean it's not a stamp? It's a piece of paper I got from the Department of Justice that says I can work here. And it imposes certain rules like uh, you have to have at least half of your staff being from the EU. That was imported from the work permit legislation in Ireland, which was, imposed, which was actually enacted to control economic migrants. Recently, in 2017, before they introduced the right to work for asylum seekers, they were forced by a court to do so at first. And one of the arguments that the Irish government presented to the courts as to why they were not allowing people to work was they wanted to avoid pull factors. So they didn't want to attract people to come to Ireland and seek protection in Ireland. But there are more refugees in countries that are poorer than Ireland. Jordan is poor. They have over a million uh, refugees. Nobody sits at home and thinks, where could I get the most social welfare benefits? Oh, I'll just travel to that country. Nobody does that. Same thing with Rwanda, uh, Uganda in Africa. It's one of the poorest countries on earth. And yet they have over a million people. I mean, most of their budget comes in the form of foreign aid. But they have over a million people. So that reflects on their values of openness, of actually being willing to do whatever they possibly can with the little resources they have uh, to welcome people who are fleeing persecution and war. Once again, remember that we're only talking about 6,000 people here. That's tiny by international standards. Just to take a comparison, Lebanon, which has a similar population to Ireland at about 6 million, is thought to have about 1.5 million Syrian refugees alone. That's a quarter of the population. Or to take a more comparable European country like the Netherlands, which has a population of 17 million, they receive between 30 to 35,000 asylum seekers and their families every year. 
In 2015 alone, about 60,000 people arrived in the Netherlands. That's 10 times the number in Ireland's entire direct provision system. The truth is that Ireland is one of the last places for migrants to turn up in Europe because of its geography. We're isolated, literally an island, surrounded by the open Atlantic and the Irish Sea. Also, we're not well known. We haven't been an attractive country to move to for most of our history. You only have 5,000 to 6,000 people in direct provision in Ireland. Compare that with 1 million, you start to see that it's actually not that much of a bigger deal. There are doctors in direct provision. There are people who have university qualifications, for example, who want to work, who are able to work, who are able to work so that they can support themselves, but the state deliberately puts them in a place like this. One huge question for everyone involved is how on earth the bureaucracy for asylum applications could possibly take this long. Uh, Sorka explained that uh, a lot of this comes down to the government just not giving enough priority to the staff and resources necessary to handle the real number of incoming asylum seekers, uh, even when those numbers are relatively small. When the system was launched in 2000, these direct provision centres were formed as accommodation centres for six months. They envisaged that it would take six months to make a decision on an application, when in reality, it quite quickly became clear that it was taking far longer. And as what was happening was people were continuing to apply for asylum, but at the same time, the legal system on the other end was not dealing with applications quickly enough. And as a result, you have centres becoming more and more filled up and people spending longer and longer in the system. And then you see people sometimes spending eight, nine, 10, even 11 or 12 years in the system. You hear of children being born in the system and spending all of their life in this institutional setting. Pretty much everyone agrees that long waiting times are bad. Those seeking asylum don't like it because they're forced to live in an institutional setting that they don't like and they describe it as taking a bad toll on their mental health. From the government's point of view, it's bad for practical reasons too. The longer people spend in the system, the more money it costs to put them up there. Meanwhile, living in these conditions for several years at a time has the effect of eroding the human dignity of those who are stuck there. Let's hear from Bulalani again. How do you even change Get on to, when you go to a shower? How do you change when there's another stranger in your room? And the indignity of having to actually strip down naked in front of a stranger is actually, it fundamentally impairs the right to dignity. And that right is conceptualized in the EU law as an inviolable. And yet you have a, an Irish government that's intent on stripping people of the right to dignity. And then you have children as well who live in direct provision centers like this one. This is a family direct provision. And a lot of their children go to the local schools. They see other children and how privileged those children are because their parents are able to work, they are able to buy them things, they are able to go to school outings, they're able to do extracurricular activities. Whereas children who live in direct provision live here in the morning, go to school. After school, the bus picks them up and takes them to a direct provision centre. They know that they are treated differently in Irish society. They are placed on the margins of Irish society by the state, deliberately so. They are forced to live in poverty. And they come here, there's nothing for them to do except for the homework club. That's it. And they lose their childhood. So as a, as a human being, you have memories that you have, you have made, pleasant memories, some unpleasant memories, of course, you'll have depending on your childhood, but you would have some pleasant memories of things that you did with your parents or things that you could... Whereas here, you're not even able to celebrate Christmas properly. You can't cook Christmas. You're not allowed to cook. You can't cook Christmas dinner. That becomes very difficult. Uh, It takes its toll on the person's mental health. The long-term effects of direct provision extend far beyond the centres themselves. Residents can spend years of their lives in this system, during which they have little chance to integrate into Irish society or develop their professional skills. 
often they'll have to leave the centres with few chances of employment, which can quickly lead to social alienation, never mind how it affects children who are born into the system and grow up in it. This is basically the opposite of what the state should be doing, as Balanani explains. A lot of the people who are stuck here do eventually get permission to live and work in Ireland. And they have to then leave this centre and go find work and go find accommodation. You have very little work experience in Ireland, but you've been in Ireland for about five to ten years or something like that. You have a huge gap on your CV. It becomes very difficult to then integrate into Irish society. The Irish government has created a class of of people with migrant background who who live on the margins of Irish society, who are structurally forced to live in poverty. Especially when you have young kids who grow up with Irish kids in schools, and they watch their friends go to college. But they can't go to college. They don't go to college. They watch their friends go and pursue their dreams. Their dreams are shattered in direct provision. It is also aiding then the, the, the very anti-migrant attitudes that we're seeing. We, so two hotels already have been banned by people who, are, who don't want to see uh, migrants living in, the, in, the, in those places. It could be one or two people doing that. But the very idea of othering has been completed by taking people of migrant backgrounds and warehousing them in direct provision sentence. It's actually essentially racial segregation because when I walk around here, I see people who look like me, brown people. Black people. There are very few white people, maybe one or two Georgian people or Albanian, but majority of the people who are living in direct provision are people of color, and those are the people who are marginalized, uh, both deliberately so through the system of direct provision, and when they leave direct provision, they still experience that marginalization. The whole system of direct provision has provoked outcry in Ireland and abroad. Uh, Both the United Nations and the Council of Europe have decried practices in the system over the years. And critics also say that the system is illegal according to the Irish Constitution and the European Convention of Human Rights. So why then has it continued for 20 years now? One issue that critics often raise is that the system is outsourced. The Irish state grants contracts to third-party private companies to run the centres. For-profit institutions are somewhat notorious for having perverse incentives, so the residents they look after don't have a choice but to live there, so they have something of a captive customer base who can't choose to leave. It's easy to see how that situation could become exploitative. It also creates interests that are invested in the continuance of the system, in a similar way to the prison system in the United States, for example. The direct provision centres are outsourced, so the catering contracts would be fulfilled by the companies and people would be put into hotels and so on. So you say that the private companies involved have in effect become a lobby group which the government wishes to please and doesn't want to take the business away from? Of course they wouldn't want to take the business away from because they, if you look at how they treat homeless Irish people, they put them in hotels too. It's the same, exact, it's just the same, it's an extension of that system but the direct provision system is one for asylum seekers. So you're just warehousing people in hotels and BNBs in old disused buildings. You get a lot of those businesses who have vested interest in keeping the system running. Um, and some of them have actually been ex-councillors. <laughs> the people who own, there was one councillor who, for example, who ran a direct provision centre and owned one. So you can imagine if you were to campaign against that direct provision, you'd be met with a lot of pushback because they do make a lot of money out of the direct provision system. The hotel recently turned into a direct provision centre in Wicklow. The owner said that he had lost €200,000 in one year because the hotel operates seasonally. So when it's in season, it's in summer, you get a lot of tourists coming in. 
but throughout the year may not have in winter for example may not have a lot of guests but if you turn it into a direct provision center you have one high occupancy because there are asylum seekers coming in and you have guaranteed income throughout the year So, Naomi, what does the current government in Ireland say about this situation with direct provision? Well, back in 2015, on the back of protests and dissatisfaction about the system, the McMahon report was published, which examined all the problems in the system and made a whole list of recommendations. This did lead to some improvements in the system. However, Sorka explained that as the international refugee crisis develops, direct provision faces new challenges every year, which it's currently not equipped to handle. In 2015, there was a huge report that came out called the McMahon Report. It was a report into the conditions of direct provision centres across the country, and it was chaired by former High Court Judge Brian McMahon. And it listed 173 recommendations to the government, which the government then said it would implement. Now, the government will tell you that it's implemented all 173 of those recommendations. Charities such as NASC in Cork will dispute that and say, actually, some of them have been implemented, others have been somewhat ha- kind of done in a halfway haphazard job, but others have not at all. The wait time has been reduced significantly. I think the average wait time for an interview at the moment is 15 months, which is still a very long time for an interview, but it's significantly better than what people were doing before. But it has reduced, but then what we're seeing now is that the numbers have increased coming into the country again, and the number of government staff available to deal with applications is not on par with the number arriving in. Perhaps the biggest question about all this is, if we get rid of direct provision, what is going to take its place? This is an issue that pretty much every country is struggling with. Essentially, if you don't have open borders and if you limit who can enter the country and on what basis, then you need a system for processing people. You need a system for expelling those who fail whatever test is set up. That is the consequence of having restrictions on movement of people. It could be reformed in its current state to make it quicker and better for those who, who go through it. It could be abolished altogether, and which would mean we would have to create a new system from scratch. Or we could go back to the previous system, which essentially provided aid to asylum seekers on the same basis as homeless people. That last one seems almost unthinkable in the current circumstances, given the massive housing shortage and record homelessness levels that exist now. The number one call is own door accommodation. So no longer housing people in the institutional setting there has been this constant call for the system to end, for it to, for direct provision to cease to exist. And I find that very interesting as a journalist, because while one or two groups have come up with alternatives, a lot of people do not have an, an alternative to the system. They say this should end, but do not offer up what should replace it. I asked Bulalani what he thought of the situation. The Irish government knows exactly how to improve it, because they haven't had direct provision since the beginning of time. So if the Minister of Justice told me he doesn't know how to vindicate the right to privacy or the right to dignity or how he should make sure that the best interest of the child prevails, irrespective of the child's nationality. If the minister told me that, then I would tell him that he shouldn't be a minister of justice and equality because that suggests that he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, So they know exactly what it is that they are doing by warehousing people here and trying to deter others from coming by stripping people of their fundamental human rights. They know what the alternative is. They have had the alternative and they don't want to, they are not interested in pursuing the alternative because in their heads it will attract other people. But there's no evidence of such thing. 
there's absolutely zero evidence to suggest that a person will fly from their country just to get access to Irish welfare or any welfare for that matter. Because majority of the people who fleeing persecution end up in countries that have very little welfare support for refugees. Direct provision is not popular. There's a lot of sympathy for those suffering within it, particularly among the left, but not exclusively. Meanwhile, in the background, there are signs that this issue has been somewhat hijacked by the international far right, a part of a recent trend in Irish politics. In the past, I don't even say 18 months, we've seen this topic become front page news and headlines in a way that it never was before. I think this a lot of it is tied up with the international environment, the rise of the far right internationally, the debate around migration, which is one of the issues, if not the issue of our time. And it's become far more commonplace for people to understand what direct provision means. Whereas if you'd ask someone 10 years ago about direct provision, odds are they might not have known what you were talking about. This is all with a background to a rise in this kind of right-wing anti-immigrant sentiment, which we saw spreading across Europe in the last few years, but has only really publicly reached Ireland in the last few months. It was always in Ireland, but it's only really kind of become a vocal, headline-worthy issue since, I suppose, a year ago. And that started with the the fire and um, the arson attack on the proposed direct provision centre in Moville in County Donegal on the Inishone Peninsula. That went up in flames. No one was in the building, no one was injured, but there was significant damage done to the building. One month later, a proposed centre in Ruski in County Roscommon also went on fire. And then a month later, that same centre, the hotel that was meant to open, went on fire again. So there was a message being sent out by whether it was one crazy person, two crazy people or a small group that they did not want asylum seekers coming to the country. That kind of quietened down for a few months. But then we saw what happened in Uchter Ord in September, which were a huge protest against um, the opening of a centre in this Galway town on the basis that people were saying they did not have the resources to introduce people into the town. But it was far more nuanced and far more complicated than that. You've done a little bit of reporting on signs that this debate has been hijacked by quite sophisticated international far-right operators. Can you tell us a little bit about what signs there are of that? Yes, and myself and my colleague, Conor Gallagher, wrote about this a few months ago. It had been brought to our attention a few times that there was a small group of people turning up at local community meetings regarding asylum seekers. So, for instance, there was a meeting a few months back in in the town of Lismore in Waterford regarding a community sponsorship program whereby the town wanted to sponsor a Syrian family to come into the town. Uh, It was advertised on Facebook the day before the meeting that there was a, a town meeting happening to discuss the direct provision centre and that people should go and protest against the opening of a direct provision centre in this town. Now this Facebook group and many other Facebook groups and Facebook events that have appeared over the last few months seem to all be tied back to a small group of people and a small network that is running around the country that we realised over time they were all interconnected. You'll notice now a lot of the groups that exist uh, use the phrase against inhumane direct provision centres. The word inhumane often appears in the name of the group. It's almost kind of used as a, as a shield or a cover for the actual sentiments of perhaps not everyone in the group, but the people who have formed the group. So as I said, we, myself and Connor could see this happening and we decided in September that we basically had enough information to show that this no, no longer was just one or two people 
turning up at random in meetings. It was a concentrated effort and organized effort to attend any meeting or any discussion about the welcoming or the introduction of asylum seekers into the community. And the reason we discussed that the international links is that there are definite ties to international groups around funding and also um, one or two of the people who are involved, uh, well, one in, one in particular is, is, is based overseas. So it's 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 what we've seen in other countries, just raising its ugly head in Ireland as well. And then what's happened alongside that is we've seen a number of politicians who have used language and rhetoric around the asylum debate, which is quite anti-immigrant and has fueled this fear of the other, which is quite palpable in Ireland at the moment, which I would not have felt a few years ago. There is fear-mongering happening there. I spoke to a woman who's on the phone who was connected to one of the towns where there was a centre proposed to open and she said her 16-year-old daughter had come home from school saying that if a direct provision centre opened, she had heard that she would be raped by a black man. So this is something children are hearing this type of language. This language is going around and it is dangerous language. It is hugely dangerous. And I think people need to be aware of the right-wing elements that are infiltrating groups around the country, groups who quite simply just want to raise their voice and say, we feel forgotten by the government. We feel like we are a country, uh, a town in the West of Ireland or a town in the Midlands that does not receive enough resources. And then you want to bring a hundred people here and tell us to look after them, but they should be aware that their voices and their views may be manipulated by small groups. These are acts of outright violence and intimidation, and burning the homes of foreigners is one of those things that recalls some of the darkest moments in recent and not-so-recent history. Uh, You could understand that people living in these centres might be wondering right now if the next arson attack will be on them, or if the next building to go up in flames will be an empty one or not. Now, you alluded to earlier that there had been some planned direct provision centres that were set on fire here in Ireland recently. It's an escalation in the tension, I would say. And the other thing that strikes me as somewhat ironic is that you're kind of on the same side in that you don't want the direct provision centres to exist either, but for different reasons, I suppose. What is it like in the wake of those fires? Do Do you feel that your impression of Ireland is changing at all from when you first came here as a student? I do understand. I, I was studying xenophobia, so I can understand what went on there because you do get um, small-minded, ignorant people who would go out and do something like that. It doesn't take the whole community of Ruski to burn down that hotel. It was only one person or two people, maybe four, who threw some flammable uh, liquids and things like that into the hotel. So it didn't take a lot of the, the majority of the people who live in that town are quite open. I was there. Um, we met with some of them. Um, they were quite open. In fact, we went to mass um, before we had the rally there. Um, the people there are quite nice and friendly. Um, they are quite open and welcoming to uh, people with from uh, uh, people with migrant backgrounds. And there's another family, black family, that lives in the town. Actually, it gets scary for us when we live in a direct provision center like this because one, some of the direct provision centers are well known. So. I was quite scared to get on the bus because, you know, we never know what's going to happen. You saw the road itself in the bushes. You can't even walk there. Like It's quite scary because somebody could actually just target the bus. It, it's frightening for us to watch something like that happening because a lot of people who are in direct provision have fled violence and persecution in the country. We know what it means. I lived in South Africa. I lived through xenophobic violence where people from other Africa, where my, uh, migrants from other African countries were beaten. 
um, they were beaten, they were stoned to death, they were hacked to death, they were burnt alive. So I've seen um, what it can do uh, when that violence starts targeting people. So it is quite frightening, but it hasn't changed my view of Irish people. I'm well aware of the generosity of the Irish people, but the problem is the Irish state, the Irish government. These arson attacks also very precisely echo events that have taken place in other countries across Germany, the Netherlands, Italy, France. Asylum seekers and refugee accommodation has been burned down just as political rhetoric against immigrants was on the rise. It's like a playbook being repeated. So, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there is an election coming up in the next month. And we've seen before that Ireland has been targeted by international far-right groups who sometimes hope to play our political system to their advantage. So, Naomi, do you think that the groups who might hope to take advantage of the tension around direct provision could succeed in influencing the election uh, in February? Well, what we've seen in the previous elections held, so for example, the European elections in particular, is that there is an organised and relatively well-funded effort to establish anti-immigration right-wing politics in Ireland, which of course have so far almost skipped over the country. What we've seen in other countries is that the far right gets a foothold by using a fairly predictable set of tools. So they use controversy to provoke media coverage and to gain free publicity. They invest pretty heavily in social media to share content that triggers fears of outgroups. They exploit wedge issues that help far right agitators to portray themselves as the voices of a supposed real or genuine people who are pitted against what they cast as an out of touch corrupt elite. I'm going to discuss all of this in much more detail in a half pint, which I'm going to put up over on Patreon. And I'm going to speak to the Dutch political scientist Cass Muda about what Ireland and the Irish media as well could learn from the other countries around Europe that have experienced this phenomenon already. Yes, absolutely. Do check that out because it's really interesting. Uh, So unsurprisingly, uh, here in Ireland, the two big players in the forthcoming election are the usual old titans, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. So um, what do you think uh, the issue of direct provision will, will appear as in that election, if it comes up at all? It's quite an interesting thing, actually, that so far the main parties in the election have not sought to make direct provision an issue. Now, this may change during the campaign as they have yet to announce most of the policies that they're running on. However, it also may reflect cautiousness about making direct provision an election issue because it's very risky. So among the left, direct provision can be talked about as a straightforward human rights issue. Left-wing parties can call for it to be abolished. Uh, But among centrist and right-leaning parties like Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, bringing up direct provision risks becoming a proxy for a debate about immigration in general, which they really don't want to provoke because it would split their electorate and it would play into the hands of those small far-right groups trying to get a foothold in Irish politics. Okay, right. So I see what you mean. So I suppose people who usually vote for Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil, and that's, you know, just huge big swathes of the country, they're probably... Im- about half, yeah. About half, okay. So there, there must be a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to issues like this. Yeah, so in within both parties, there's likely to be voters who would feel uncomfortable with immigration broadly. They also no doubt have supporters for whom immigration just simply isn't a really big issue. And they also will have supporters who are turned off by anything that looks like an anti-immigration dog whistle. 
Uh, so for those two main parties, the kind of the the dominant mainstream parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, it's a risky one to bring up. Okay, right. So we'll have to keep a very close eye on this issue in the debates uh, coming up to this election. Uh, to finish up, it is worth mentioning that the debate around direct provision has also had a really significant cultural impact uh, on Ireland, especially in art and music. Um, I happened to recently catch up with the award-winning Irish hip-hop artist, the Rusangano family, who talked to me a little about their 2016 track, Heathrow, which is a song which addresses some of the issues around migration, refugee status, and belonging in modern Ireland. Uh, The group is made up of Morley, God Knows, and My Name is John. So let's hear from some of them now. The song Heathrow, it's a song that came organically as well, just because of what was happening inside of us, because I I guess in a way before people were speaking about it, uh, the way that it became like such a trending topic, uh, we we had wrote that song a year prior and it was just almost um, ourselves reminiscing. Illegal immigration is the modern form of invasion. This is readily seen when one sees images of boats heading like an armada across the Mediterranean. But it is no less invasion when it is the more clandestine type of illegal immigration experienced in Ireland. In all cases, these are people who are effectively giving two fingers to the state and its citizens and saying, we will decide not you. Black man with a pizza, trying to get me shifra. She's just a local girl, I'm making a pizza. White man with pizza, trying to get me sicker. She's just a local girl, I'm making kinshasa. Black man with a pizza, trying to get me shifra. She's just a local For me, it's a case of um, the whole idea of an immigrant, right? It gets to a point where there's like a division when you're like, these are the others. Immigration itself is like, it's divided into two. There's the good immigrants and then there's the bad ones. The good immigrants is the guy who got a job from his country and came here to work for it and then goes home after that. The bad immigrant is the guy who's coming in because his life is in danger or he just can't survive where he's at and he's looking at a way in. So he's illegal for a while. Now, I happen to know a few people who, who were in that situation. My own father was in that situation. So I understand at first hand what, what, what it was like being in that situation, like what it was like to depend on such little amount of money you know, to survive on. So, but I do know that when you're reading news and you, you hear people talk, sometimes you feel like, I don't think people get it. It's hard to put yourself in the shoes of these people because they're not that familiar. This whole thing is kind of new to Ireland as well. And it was never a case of like pointing the finger at anybody or blaming people for it. But it's more like, I just want to tell you, from my point of view, what this is what this is like. And I don't think people happily leave their hometown to say, I'm going to go struggle somewhere for years. And I don't even know if this is going to work out. But they do it because they have no other option. So that was, that was us kind of telling that side of the story. Everything you said is, is absolutely, you know, is absolutely on point. Like, I don't, I wouldn't make another song in, in the same way we did because in that way it felt like we said what we needed to say in that moment and it was was amazing but it was completely outside of the trending topic if that makes sense so it made it like it made it much more personal and i think it is still personal because i still know people who are still in that uh same uh debacle you know what i mean so yeah that was fantastic Many thanks to the guys in Rosangado family, as well as Sorka Pollock and Bulalani Mafako, who you heard in this episode.
That's all from us for season three, but we will be back very soon with a brand new season. So keep your eyes on your podcast feed. Absolutely. And remember, if you want to hear more from Swarka Pollock, uh, we'll be publishing her full interview as a half pint over on Patreon too. And remember, if you'd like to get access to our whole archive of half pint extra content, you can subscribe to the podcast now by heading over to patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. A massive thanks to everyone who signed up to support us this season. We appreciate the support so much and none of this would be possible without you. Absolutely. True words were never spoken. And as always, a huge thank you too to our wonderful season three sponsor who's been there with us all throughout the season, biddymurphy.com. If you're looking for authentic crafts and art made on the island of Ireland, don't forget to check them out. Sharing the joy of art. Ireland. We'll leave you with Heathrow by the Rosangado family. Slon everyone. Slon. When they ask you on entry, black man with no pizza, tryna get me shit right. She's just a local girl, I made in a pizza. How white man with a pizza, tryna get me sicker. She's just a local girl, I made in Kinshasa. Black man with no pizza, tryna get me shit right. She's just a local girl, I made in pizza. White man with a pizza, tryna get me sicker. I'm feeling like taking a chance without it on my guard to be on a radar. But government owns a radar. Condescend, how would I date her? I'm on 20 euros a week in my pocket is weak, so no cash in my strategy. On top of that, I'm an artist. Opposite of regular salary profiles on airplane mode. Can connect to a network, so I can compare to a network. And I'm probably deported by next year. Plus, my vision is bleak, my side is speak. No sense to the tongue I speak. My daily meal is Gary. Missing from a vocabulary. I'm living off fish and chips, but deep inside I'm craving fade three. Honestly, I should have let it go, but then I made it here because I never let go. But you know of all the lies I used to get through. When I see police on my Maju Dialo, hunted by body Sahara Swallow, did I feel like do that to die over you? Did I feel like do that to die over you? Did I feel like do that to die over you? Illegal immigration is the modern form of invasion. This is readily seen when one sees images of boats heading like an armada across the Mediterranean. But it is no less invasion when it is the more clandestine type of illegal immigration experienced in Ireland. In all cases, these are people who are effectively giving two fingers to the state and its citizens and saying, we will decide not you. Black man with a pizza, tryna get me shifra. She's just a local girl, I met in a pizza. Oh, white man with a pizza, tryna get me sicker. She's just a local girl, I met in Kinshasa. Black man with a pizza, tryna get me shifra. She's just a local girl, I met in a pizza. Oh, white man with a pizza. It's not all black and white. Zebras and pandas, sheepers and seekers, asylum seekers, sugar daddies and slippers, spooning Nubian grim reapers. This is where history finds us. Our history binds us. No blacks, no dogs, no Irish. 
The pressure, no pressure to make a decision to change my feathers and flock with the others. You taking your measures to block my maneuvers. I shoot them for sinning with so many siblings. I made it on TV for challenging gravity. Floated on sea, but I'm shooting by poverty. Wars and politics, famine and disease. Blinding promises I never got to see. Stuck in Heathrow, never got to overseas. But I could have been under the sea. And the family will never hear of me again. Predicament of the new slaves. Capsizing on your holidays. Looking out of place like a lapis dick. From my Santa Maria, be macular. Come on, Santa Maria, got Negroes in it. Let it sink.